Hello, I'm Charles Goddard, Editorial Director at Economist Impact. Welcome to this Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the Health of the Ocean. This is the fourth in a series of podcasts about chemical pollution in the ocean. The first in the series looked at the extent and scale of the problem. The second at the hundreds of thousands of chemicals in existence and how they're regulated. The third, given we know chemicals are ubiquitous, even in the deepest ocean, the extent to which this is an environmental and human crisis or impending crisis. And in this podcast, we're looking at responses to the problem of chemical pollution and in particular, the role that the private sector needs to play and the role that green and sustainable chemistry and the circular economy must play in accelerating the transition to safer and less hazardous chemicals. At the Back to Blue initiative, we've just released our own report on marine chemical pollution, the invisible wave getting to zero pollution in the ocean. The report seeks to raise awareness of what clearly is a much underappreciated problem. Marine chemical pollution is global in its scale and profound. And as we also argue, chemical pollution in the ocean deserves to be treated with the same gravity and the same urgency as plastic pollution. Well, Joining me to discuss all of this, I am delighted to welcome Joel Tickner, Professor of Public Health at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Joel is a leading thinker in how to make chemistry safer for people and the environment. He's the founder and executive director of the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, or GC3, a network of companies and organizations working towards that end. Welcome, Joel. Welcome. Thank you. So let's um, begin, if we can, partly with a recent paper that you wrote in which you argued for an urgent and complete reinvention of the chemicals industry. But before I think we explore some of the details, why is it that the chemicals industry for so long has been able to externalize its costs passing these on to society? I think there's a number of reasons. And it's not just the chemical industry externalizing its costs. I think society hasn't internalized the costs of chemistry to the environment, to health. Some of this relates to the fact that we think about the benefits of chemistry, but the impacts are harder to quantify. How do we quantify when we don't fully know the extent of environmentally related illness or ecosystem damage related to chemical exposures? We've got better numbers on the cost of environmentally related disease. United Nations has done that. The extent of the costs of damage to the oceans is still widely unknown. So it's much easier to calculate the benefits than the cost. Laws try to internalize some of those costs. They provide costs of compliance with emission standards or waste standards. But those end-of-life costs, those costs of exposure during the life cycle of a chemical are not incorporated into the cost of a product, for example, a product that might contain a carcinogen, asbestos, for example, right? Those costs weren't internalized until later on when lawsuits were made against Johns Mansville and other companies, which ultimately went bankrupt. And we're starting to see this a little bit with PFAS in the environment and some of the lawsuits against the companies for PFAS contamination or the lawsuit against Bayer for cancers caused by glyphosate. But in the end, those costs, those impacts weren't thought about at the design phase of the chemistry. So it's very hard to think about those now in terms of how the chemical industry acts. We comply with the laws. Our products are low risk, but policies allow a certain amount of risk, right? Our chemicals policies are designed 
to allow what we might call an acceptable level of risk, which has an impact on society. So it's that balancing of costs and benefits. So we really need to first understand what the full extent of the costs of disease related to chemicals are, and then think about how we design both the policy structures and the incentive structures so that those costs are incorporated not only into the chemical industry's counting, but the whole value chain's accounting when they either manufacture using those chemicals or source products using those chemicals. The sense that the chemical industry is beginning to move on some issues, but on those particular issues, on pollution and on environmental justice, the chemicals industry is not yet moving. And why is the a sort of a bifurcation then. We've got climate change now on the agenda, but we don't have pollution on the agenda. What's happening? Well, I think part of this is that the investment community is focused on climate change and biodiversity. They are just beginning to focus on social justice and chemical pollution. So in the coming years, I think we're going to see a much greater focus on the risks of manufacturing and using toxic chemicals on the risks associated with community contamination by chemicals. But you know, you only account for what you're held accountable to. And if you're not held accountable to impacts at point of production or the cost along a life cycle of a chemical, then those don't get accounted for on balance sheets. So it really will take the investment sector saying, hey, this is a risk to us, much as they see climate change as a risk that chemistry has to have the same set of risks associated with it, and also the same set of investments on solutions. I mean, there is a, also a particular connection to climate change, isn't there, both in the sense that chemicals take a lot of energy, and most of that is fossil fuel-based energy to produce, but they also are mainly produced out of fossil fuels. There is an interconnection between the two. I wonder if you just explain that a little bit, because I think in the overall transition, that's quite important, isn't it? The vast majority of chemicals, what we call petrochemicals or basic chemicals, are created out of fossil fuels. The chemical industry is the third largest user of fossil fuels and the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So there is a direct connection between fossil fuels and chemistry that governments haven't fully recognized. For example, in the United States, the Biden administration is looking at energy intensive industries, but only at steel and cement. Chemicals aren't on the table, yet they are in the top three and really need to be part of that top three because in the end, fossil fuels are an integrated system. So if we're reducing the amount of fossil fuels used for energy and transportation, they're going to be shifted into plastics and chemicals, which are the other two uses. And we see that in the numbers. The use of fossil fuels for plastics is going up significantly, and the growth of fossil fuel-based plastics is increasing significantly. So we're not going to win on climate unless we address the whole fossil fuel infrastructure, which is three-part, plastics, chemicals, and fuels. The change the chemicals industry has to undergo is not just a double transition of decarbonization and of creating a more sustainable chemistry. But there are many other structural factors involved in the nature of the chemicals industry itself. Why is it that this change is not simple or straightforward? A few years ago, I was speaking with a friend of mine who was a R&D director at Dow and now is Dean of Engineering at the University of Oklahoma. You know, I asked him, what's the biggest barrier to 
green and sustainable chemistry? And his answer was steel in the ground, that all of our chemistry is based on these large monolithic petrochemical facilities, right? Because you require economies of scale to get the prices to where they need to be. So all of our organic chemistry is based on seven basic chemicals derived primarily from fossil fuels. And then everything else is an iteration off of those chemistries. So if we don't start with one of those basic chemistries, and several are highly toxic chemicals, we can't make new chemicals. So in essence, to build safer new chemicals, you need massive facility investments that are capital intensive. And those kinds of investments aren't going to happen when the benefits of that investment are uncertain. Do we know whether a new chemistry is actually going to take off? Yet we continue these investments in basic chemicals like ethylene, which we know have clear markets in polyethylene, the largest commodity plastics. So we've built a system a certain way back in the 1940s around fossil fuels and these basic chemicals. Most chemists don't understand even that if you go back on the chemical tree, you end up with seven chemicals and everything derives from those. What one industry analyst has called molecular monoculture really eliminates diversity and eliminates the ability to think about a broad new set of molecules to solve problems. So we built a system a certain way, and that inhibits or limits innovation in new solutions. So in some ways, we need to go back to the fundamentals. Is this large-scale integrated petrochemical model the best way to get us towards our climate and safer chemicals goals? And let me add there that the chemical industry is actually facing three tidal waves right now. One is climate. But one is the plastics and materials crisis, right? Circularity. How are they going to deal with all of this material that's out there in the economy that they're going to have to take back because its end of life is problematic? And then there's the toxicity. So the European Commission is right now looking at transition pathways for energy intensive industries and the chemical industry is starting to wake up to the fact that the current structure of production may not be sustainable in the future. It worked really well 40 years ago, maybe for the last 50 it has, but for the next 50, if we're trying to get to a climate neutral, non-toxic and circular economy, it probably isn't going to work. The other factor that you did mention earlier was this embedded kind of view in the chemical sector that health and safety environmental impacts are not embedded into the design of most chemicals in the market today. And that also still doesn't seem to be the case, does it? It still seems to be a cost and performance set of considerations that drives innovation in chemistry. Generally, that is the case. I think more and more we're seeing that integration at the design phase. But for the first 50 years of chemistry, it really was about cost and performance. Those environmental and health and safety considerations weren't part of it. And those chemistries are the vast majority by volume of what's on the market today. Right? The newer things that have come on the market since the 1980s generally had health, safety, environment thought about at some point in their manufacture, particularly if they were fundamental new chemistries, because there were laws that required companies to evaluate their chemicals to some degree before they came on the market. 
that's not as much the problem as the 95% by volume of what was on the market prior to these laws, prior to the 1970s. So the starting point is really old chemistry. You think about this in other sectors. If the electronic sector were using the technologies from the 1960s and 50s, we'd never be where we were today with the iPhone. But the chemical industry hasn't evolved the same way as other industries. It's still based on 1940s and even earlier technology. Some of the reactions the chemical industry are using today date back to the 1800s. You're listening to a Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the Health of the Ocean. I'm speaking to Joel Tickner, founder and executive director of the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, about the challenge of making a transition for the chemicals industry towards less hazardous and harmful products. Coming up, what is green chemistry? Every time we intervene in an ecological system, we're going to have some impact on the planet. And what we're trying to do is minimize those impacts through designing molecules that are benign at their design phase. Joel takes us through it and some of its exciting innovations. Well, let's come back to the very earliest thought that we had, your own recent paper in which you argue for an urgent and complete reinvention of the chemicals industry. I mean, that really does sound like a very ambitious task, and you've sort of partially explained why that's needed. But what needs to happen to make that a reality and at the scale that's required? Yeah, it's it's big. But as I start thinking about it, right, this 10-year horizon to really tackle climate change, we're not going to make our goals unless we fundamentally reinvent. There are incremental steps that are available that we should and must take immediately, like renewable feedstocks in the chemical industry, taking, for example, plastic materials and other materials that are already in the economy and figuring out ways through sustainable advanced recycling to bring those materials back into the economy as feedstock for new chemistries. So we can fundamentally reduce carbon intensity of products, but that's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be good enough to address, for example, the toxicity in the system, which is inherent in those molecules. We can make the same molecules using renewable feedstocks, but they still have the same toxicity, the same community impact. They're still made in the same facilities. So I think that fundamental rethinking is really going back to the 1940s. We we built the system a certain way in the 1940s, and it worked. It allowed rapid growth of the industry, right? We moved from almost zero of the petrochemical industry in the 1940s to a massive industry by the 1960s that was already mature. Fortune magazine back in 1960 had already said that the industry is mature. So it hasn't matured a lot since then. It's grown, it's innovated, but at a very small scale. And then certainly certain areas like pharmaceuticals, it's innovated quite a lot in specialty chemicals, but the basic fundamentals of the industry, it hasn't. So really rethinking it is going back to the 1940s and saying, okay, we started with synthetic rubber. We needed synthetic rubber for the war effort. Governments intervened. They brought together researchers. They brought together industry. They brought together the supply chain. They forced collaboration. They provided massive investments. And overnight, we built the supply of synthetic rubber in the United States, for example. So those sorts of massive investments you know, what we might call a wartime effort. It's not a good analogy right now with the war in Ukraine, but a significant effort 
that is coordinated, collaborated, where we say, this is a massive undertaking we need to address. As an analogy, in current times, we needed to compete first with the Japanese and then with the Chinese around semiconductors, and the U.S. federal government put tens of billions of dollars into the semiconductor research and engagement effort. One was called Semitech, a massive effort in the 1980s to build the U.S. semiconductor industry. Governments do this all the time where there's a national critical priority to act. And this is what we need to do now and really think about if we're serious about fundamentally restructuring the chemical industry and rethinking chemistry, then we need to put those massive efforts together. But we're not there yet. We're getting it for renewable energy technology. We're not getting it for chemistry quite yet. So a kind of Marshall Plan, in a sense, for chemicals. Exactly. And a critical part of that is about developing a diverse set of tunable molecules, a different set of molecules than the seven that you've mentioned that exist presently on the product end of things, away from the chemicals themselves, but what chemicals are used in. My guess is that there has to be a major focus around the redesign of products and also the involvement of consumer companies and, uh, and consumers. Right. This is, a, this is a value chain effort, right? So we outline five major transitions. We need an energy transition. This is a heavily energy intensive industry. We need a feedstock transition because addressing energy doesn't address the embedded carbon in the feedstock. So for certain chemistries like ethylene, there's more embedded carbon than the carbon needed to make the ethylene. Then we need to really rethink the molecules, right? So good thing about some bio-based chemistries is that you can create much more molecular diversity because the feedstocks are more diverse. Then we need to really rethink the way we make these chemicals in the first place, not in these large, massive facilities, but really in a more distributed set of facilities. And then lastly, we need to rethink our products. The fundamentals of cleaner production are dematerialization and detoxification. We need to figure out ways to design products that are longer living, that are recyclable, reusable, and that use less material per unit of product, that use less toxic chemicals to make them. So we start thinking about the function we're trying to get from chemicals rather than the need for the actual chemicals. For example, we may be able to move from a toxic chemical like bisphenol A, which is used as a developer in cash register receipts to electronic receipts, because in the end, the function is documenting a transaction rather than having an actual piece of paper in your pocket, which might say it, it might address multiple goals by thinking about the functionality the chemicals provide and whether you can achieve that functionality in a different way through a service, for example. I mean, we've seen the value of car share services. Maybe we don't need products, but we need the functionality that those products provide. And then lastly, it's a whole issue about consumption. Do we need a lot of single-use throwaway things? And, and that ultimately is a societal question that's exceptionally difficult to tackle, but one we will have to tackle as we have a growing planet, right? I mean, if we think about where the areas of greatest growth of the chemical industry are and of plastics, it's in the developing world. And you know, we have to be careful not to hold back those economies, but we should be supporting those economies to be as sustainable as they possibly can and not recreate the problems we have in the industrialized world. 
We have been talking mainly about the role that industry needs to play in this process, but you have mentioned also the idea of the Marshall Plan, the sense of a cross-the-value-chain, cross-government, cross-industry approach to the transition that's needed. What is the role then that regulation can play in this process? And what about the kind of regulation that's been set in place by Europe, for example, in the European Union around the new chemicals legislation that's there? How important is it that governments get their legislation, their regulations right, so that incentives and regulations can drive? It's critical. And I I think the best hope for a regulatory structure that both disincentivizes problem chemistry, but puts significant incentives into driving better chemistry and materials is what's happening in Europe. That's the marketplace and investor action is also another place, but I don't see that same level of push in the United States as I do see in Europe. But I think what we can think of is is in three major bins. One would be the policies that restrict the chemicals of concern that drive the marketplace towards better options. Two is removing the subsidies for problem chemistries in the first place and fossil fuels. We put in the United States $20 billion a year into fossil fuel subsidies. Imagine if we put those subsidies into green and sustainable chemistries, $20 billion a year, that would fundamentally reshape the industry. The investment in today's dollars to build synthetic rubber in the United States was $12 billion. $20 billion a year could make a significant inroad into really rethinking the industry. So shifting those subsidies. And then there's the whole supportive policy side too. I think some elements of the chemical industry are ready to move to fundamentally shift the way they do their operations, but they need government to be able to support them, particularly smaller, medium-sized companies that just don't have the resources. They built their structures in a certain way and to rebuild them in another way, they don't have the finances to be able to do that. So significant investment in R&D, in commercialization, in capitalization will be needed. The benefit of the current system was you had a set of oil barons who really invested so much. We need the tech giants of the future as well, along with government to build those investments into a future sustainable chemical industry. Joel, the green chemistry startup scene is booming at the moment, and it's quite an exciting scene. What are some of the exciting innovations that are beginning to emerge? There's a whole set of them. Some of them relate to being able to extract chemistries more efficiently from biomass. That's often hard and because biomass is messy and in complex molecules with impurities. So being able to extract, for example, from lignin and cellulose, being able to do that effectively and efficiently is important. There's new fundamental research in what we're calling synthetic biology. So using essentially bugs to create chemistry. So that somewhat circumvents those very energy and capital intensive processes to go from basic feedstock to materials. So you might be able to create these tunable molecules. I need this. I've got a bacteria that can digest this sugar and create this chemistry that we can do. That fundamental, interesting new way. The other is an area of what we call rational design. So we can look at the way pharmaceutical industry 
creates drugs, which is they take a molecule, they figure out how to fine tune that molecule so it has toxicity or impact at a particular organ or cellular level. Well, we can do the same and create these libraries of molecules and ways we can tweak those molecules to have different functionalities. So using AI and digitization to really create molecular libraries of different molecular structures that can achieve different goals. So there is a range of really interesting research happening in the green chemistry space that needs to be then linked to the technology needs and the application needs in industry, and then obviously addressing all of those barriers to adoption and commercialization, which are significant, their cost, their performance goals. We may have to rethink some of our cost and performance requirements to be able to bring in some of these new molecules because they work differently. We want this idea that it's a drop-in substitute. It works exactly the same way. It costs exactly the same. We don't have to reformulate. Well, in the future, that may not be the case. Certain chemistries that we have today work really well and they work across applications. Well, we might need a multitude of applicable chemistries that work in different applications differently to achieve the same goal. It may be a little bit more of a diverse world, which creates its own set of challenges, but we shouldn't just assume that we're going to have lots of drop-in molecules that do exactly the same thing as the ones we've created. To that point, there is an ambition towards zero pollution, particularly in the European Union. Do correct me if I'm wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean zero harm, does it? And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be completely free of pollution. What we're talking about is an ambition. And green chemistry reduces the toxicity, hopefully, but it doesn't necessarily completely eradicate it, does it? I think it would be reasonable to say that every time we intervene in an ecological system, it's going to have some impact. We're going to have some impact on the planet. And what we're trying to do is minimize those impacts through designing molecules that are benign at their design phase, but even a benign molecule can have an impact. So it's really having in place the transparency, the assessment methodologies, the ability to see what we're trading off between our options, because there's not going to be any perfect option, because there are, I wouldn't call them trade-offs, but there are areas where we need to optimize the ability, recyclability and carbon neutrality with toxicity, right? Certain molecules that might be toxic may have a benefit towards circularity. And then we have to then think about, okay, that's the case. How do we address that problem? So the more we have methods that don't just crumple all that information into a life cycle assessment, but really allow us to see where we have problems and where we can improve on those problems will allow us to keep improving on our environmental impact, right? It's the ambition of zero pollution. We're likely never to get there. But I think that goal sets in motion a set of goals or a set of interim steps to get there, right? It's, it's what we call backcasting, right? We set with the big goal. Um, the Swedes are notorious for big goals, right? They set a big goal of zero highway deaths. And they know they're never going to get there, but that puts in motion the series of activities of how are we going to achieve that goal and what needs to change, what investments, what policies will help us get there. And we haven't necessarily done that with chemistry, and it's time that we do that. 
It's a whole new set of considerations in that sense, in the way in which we look at chemical innovation, including the balance considerations against other existential problems that we face, including climate change. What is your sense of what the roadmap now needs to look like up until 2030? It's easy to get caught up in short-term solutions. For example, we need to address the plastics crisis. So let's create these ways to better recycle plastics. That's a short-term solution. It's an important solution. So we need to have a long-term end goal. And then think about, well, what are the interim steps? And then there's a set of questions to think about what is the structure of the chemical industry? What does a future structure look like? Is it concentrated? Is it distributed? We need to start thinking about, well, what are the value of the assets that might need to be retired in the industry to achieve some of the goals we have? I mean, there's so many unanswered questions, but I think once we have a long-term goal, then we could start working backwards to say, well, what do we need to figure out to move towards that goal? So I think it's really starting to ask those tough questions, set the goalpost, and then ask those questions, as well as develop the interim steps to move in the right direction. And I'm hopeful that we can do that. We're certainly doing that with respect to transportation, electrification of an energy. We need to do that with chemistry now. Joel Tickner, Professor of Public Health at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and head of GC3. Thank you so much for all of your thoughts and insights. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you all for listening. The Invisible Wave Getting to Zero Pollution in the Ocean, the report from Back to Blue, can be found at backtoblueinitiative.com, or you can visit the link on the show notes to read the report and access other relevant content from the initiative. You can also access a panel discussion on the Invisible Wave on the World Ocean Summit website, and Joel is part of that panel discussion too. Thank you, and have a good day.